Welcome to the Metaphoricist Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is The Princia Prologos by Aaron Zimmerman. Aaron is a writer, software engineer, and musician. When not daydreaming up stories, Aaron can usually be found conducting musicals in the western Chicago suburbs. Love to Katie, Elijah, Oliver, and Arthur. Find him online at AaronTellsStories.com. That's A-A-R-O-N TellsStories.com. Or on Twitter at A.P. Zimmerman. That's A-P-Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N. Let's jump in. Editor's Preface The Order of Gauntleteers requires its members to keep a journal of their experiences. The document you are about to read is such a journal. Some consider these words fanciful fiction. Others take them as literally true. A group calling themselves the Church of Time has even adopted them in scripture. While speculations abound, there are some things we do know. A hunter discovered this text in the northern forest eight years after the events described therein, inexplicably preserved. No gauntleteer has ever been able to manipulate time. No one has ever found a river in the northern mountains. No gauntleteer has ever managed to transport an object from one place to another instantaneously, let alone an entire army. So what really happened? I will not prejudice you with my own theories, but I will offer a counter-question. Does it matter? Maybe the value of a story comes more from the questions it asks than the provability of its events. In Miranda Southbrook, whether she means to or not, asks a most valuable question. What is more important, the present or the future? And the answer? I will let her story speak for itself. The Journal of Miranda Southbrook The first day is for sickness. The second is for seeing. The third day brings us power. The fourth sets foes to fleeing. The fifth day is for making. On the sixth we learn to fly. The seventh brings us wisdom, and on the eighth we die. That was how my mother sang me to sleep. When I got older, I asked her if the song was true. She told me that one day she would put on the gauntlet, and for eight days she would be a living god, able to fix everything wrong with the world. And after eight days? This is the thing about life, Miranda. It requires sacrifice. I was thirteen when she ascended. I remember her faraway eyes. I cried and cried and begged her not to die. She found me a glass of water, patted me on the head, reminded me that life was about sacrifice, and then flew away. I can't stop thinking about that song, even though my mother has been dead for years. Her voice was not trained, it was more croak than croon, but I'd give nearly anything to hear it again. Oh gods, I can't believe I just wrote that. I was just kidding. I'm not actually some silly melodramatic child. I need to start over. My name is Miranda Southbrook. I am 17, a newly sworn initiate of the Order of Gauntleteers, on my first visit to the Septum. I am the 23rd in line to ascend, to claim the power of the gauntlet. The first anointed, who is the next in line and leader of the Order, gave me this journal an hour ago. No detail is too small, he said. As gauntleteers cannot train with the object itself, for obvious reasons, reading past accounts is our best way to prepare. 
It is tradition for new initiates to pass an hour alone reflecting in the septum after taking their vows, and here I am, staring at the gauntlet and not sure what to write about it. What would a future gauntleteer need to know that they haven't already read in the accounts of the gauntleteers before me? But, of course, training isn't the only purpose of these journals. They are distributed widely and cherished by historians and minstrels. So really, this journal is my chance to tell my own story, to craft my legacy. Maybe I shouldn't admit such a thing, but my legacy is the reward for the sacrifices I've made along the way. Asher asked me to go with him to see the Princia Prologos tonight. It is a delightful play about a clever princess and a wicked queen. I dearly wanted to say yes, but here I am instead. The gauntlet's not going anywhere, Asher pouted. He is a bit dramatic, my Asher, but I love that about him. He's indulgent and spontaneous and all the things I'm not. Perhaps that's why I agreed to marry him. There will be a time for such things when I finish my training, I told him. And it's true. In a few years, I will have all the freedom and means afforded to a fully trained gauntleteer. Unlike my mother, I won't let the order consume my whole life. I'll marry Asher and have a family, and everything will be perfect. Years later, I will be called to ascend for the good of the kingdom, but there will be plenty of time for plays and Asher before that happens. And it's not just the gauntlet that keeps me from Asher's company. The Sejian prince is here, in our palace, to swear himself to our princess, and tonight there is a feast to celebrate the betrothal. The entire order will be there, sitting in a line from first anointed to newest novice as we do for all occasions of state. We've been fighting Sejia for generations, ever since they stole the other gauntlet, the right-handed one. I sometimes think, as maybe all initiates do, that I could be the one to unite the gauntlets. I dream of the songs written in my honor, and the smile on people's lips as they say my name. Miranda Southbrook, the hero whose sacrifice led to a better world for everyone. But then... What if this nuptial contrived peace holds? What if there are no more wars? I know I should want that. I know from the accounts how terrible war can be. But my life bends toward the day I put on this gauntlet to perform deeds worthy of the greatest sacrifice of all. And what could such deeds be without a war? Shall I give my life to building bridges and mend walls? Come and hear the ballad of Miranda and the great chimney cleaning. No, when my time comes, far in the future, I will be a wartime gauntleteer. I will perform deeds worthy of the gauntlet and make my mother proud. My visitation time expires. I have to dress for the feast. I feel like I wasted my time on wandering thoughts. I will ask for more time and focus on the gauntlet. Everything is ruined. I am alone in the sanctum, huddled by a brazier burning low without a chance of refilling. I stare at the flames and shake my head, unable to move past the unfairness. But there is no changing it, and my obsession accomplishes nothing. The betrothal was a trick. The Sejians came for the reasons they always come, to steal the gauntlet. The king was blinded by his hubris, and now the princess is dead, and the city burns. After the feast, I asked the first anointed for more time in the septum. He smiled indulgently, saying he remembered his own first night with the gauntlet and granting me another hour. I hurried down the spiral stairs trying to shake the wine and music from my thoughts. The doorminder, Beatrice, opened the triple lock to the sanctum, let me in, and locked it behind me. I was staring at the gauntlet, 
about to start writing a much different reflection than this, when I heard shouting outside the door. I hurried to the door just as a soldier came running down the circular stairs. They've killed the princess, he said, his words all mushed up. Beatrice turned back toward me immediately. She blinked once, her mouth straightening to a line. It is fortunate that you are here, Beatrice said through the locked door. I honor your sacrifice. She pulled a lever beside the door. Shells of solid iron dropped from above, sealing off the sanctum. The last thing I saw was a Sijian soldier, garish in red and orange, stepping around the corner with a bloody sword in hand. And now Beatrice and the other guards must be dead or captured. The Sijian soldiers batter the iron shell. They're trying to get in. I don't think they know I am here. And I have no food, no water, no hope. I will die in here. It has only just now occurred to me what Beatrice meant. It is fortunate you are here, she said. She meant the gauntlet. It is right there, gray in the fading firelight. I can prevent Sejia from stealing it. I can ascend. It seems obvious in hindsight, yet I've only just now considered the idea. Part of me thrills at the prospect of being the youngest gauntleteer ever, the savior of Redding, the hero of story and song. But the price. I knew the day would come, but it was always so far in the future it never really felt real. But here it is, eight days away and twenty years too soon. It is one thing to sacrifice yourself in the abstract eventually, but quite another to stare that sacrifice right in the leathery fingers. It is such a tatty thing, like the face of a wicked queen in a play, wrinkles exaggerated to make sure all knew she was wicked. I put off the gardens and the theater for when I would have enough time, and now the time is gone. It is hard to believe. Eight days. I have eight days to live. But I will die one way or another. I might as well prevent the Sijian bastards from stealing the gauntlet. The constant clanging. It will drive me mad if it goes on much longer. I will do it now. I am the 34th Gauntleteer. There were no trumpets to celebrate, no speeches or ceremonial incense, unless you count the symphony of clanging hammers and chisels on the other side of the shell. I could find no easy way to break the glass enclosure, so I toppled the whole pedestal. The glass shattered, scattering shards all the way to the wall ten feet away. I looked around, expecting someone to scold me for my disrespect, for my presumption. I picked up the gauntlet and shook it free of glass. I only hesitated a moment before pulling it onto my left hand. It fit like it had been sewn for me. The first day is for sickness, as the song goes. All I feel so far is a slight itch. According to the accounts, there will be body pains, fever, unlike anything I've ever felt. Morna Evansmith hated the smell of bread. Not the taste, but just the smell of bread baking. What a strange thing. The itch spreads down my arm like crawling ants. The fourth gauntleteer, Henry something or other, refused to read anything written down, saying he had trouble understanding words unless someone spoke them aloud. He paid people to read for him until his death. Such trivial nonsense. I should be focusing on the sickness and its known abatements, and my traitor mind wanders to useless stories. I cannot take the itching. It feels as if my whole body will shake free of its skin. I wish I had gone to the play with Asher, the Princia Prologos. I wish I could hold his hand and kiss him, 
and he could tell me everything will be okay. I think it's been about a day. It is hard to track the passing time, but the shaking itch recedes, so time must have passed. I still can't believe this is happening. The peace shattered, a battle raging in the streets. And down here, my life slowly ticks away to the sound of clanging chisels and banging hammers. Day two is supposed to be for seeing, but I don't see anything. Well, actually, I can see this journal and the ghostly outlines of the sanctum. This must be through a manifestation of the power, as the brazier has long since burned out. On day two, a gauntleteer must prepare her mind. That is what the accounts say. Day two is the calm quiet before the swell of day three. But I'm just bored. What if the power never comes and I die down here, helpless and starving? Only I'm not hungry, and there's the scene without light, so the power must be real. And my mother wouldn't have lied to me. There was no mistaking the power in her touch before she died. Her eyes looked distant, sad. She wasn't really my mother anymore. She tried to be, offering me a glass of water as if that single gesture could compensate for years of absence. I thought I would choose differently, that I would be a parent to my children. But here I am, turning into my mother after all. By the time I noticed the power, it had been tickling the back of my awareness for a few hours. Our world is nothing but ideas and the will to bind them. That is how Sathya Shoemaker described the feeling in her journal. That is how Will got its name. The latent power feels like the ache that calls you to stretch after waking, or like the heaving of your belly when you hold your breath past comfort. I laid my quill on the floor and tried to levitate it, using the trick of thought practiced in lessons. The quill is levitating. The quill is levitating. And then it was. The feather hovered a few inches off the stone for a heartbeat and then fluttered back down. I wept for a solid ten minutes. I don't know if it was relief, excitement, or despair. Probably all of them and more besides. The power is real. I can move things with will. The power is real. I will be dead in a week. I wiped my eyes and practiced. After an hour, it was as easy as breathing to spin the quill in circles and make it dart any which way. I willed shards of glass from the gauntlet's case into the air and twirled them around each other like snow in a winter wind. I took a break to record these thoughts, but the power calls to me. I am about to leave the sanctum. I am a day four gauntleteer, and the power fills me like wine bulging the seams of a wineskin. I practiced for hours and hours, feeling no fatigue. I think I will never sleep again. Or eat. The Sigeans are almost through the shell. In a moment, I will finish their work and peel back the metal like a curtain proclaiming the start of a story. And then, I fight. I've never killed anyone before, and I keep imagining it. I'm unsure if I will like or hate it, and both possibilities frighten me. I have a lot of fighting ahead. I wonder how long it will take me to rid the city of the Sigeans. I have no doubt I can do it. I am still mortal, but I can deflect an arrow or sword with no more than a thought. I can turn their weapons back upon them. I will not try to think about such things, but my imagination wanders to the future, to the songs written of the battle to come. 
I imagine the wide-eyed amazement when children hear the story of Miranda Southbrook from their parents over bowls of steaming porridge. I chide myself for these childish daydreams, but without hope of a future, I can only fight for my legacy. It is time. I have done something much more terrible than killing. I have broken the world. As planned, I peeled the shell away, revealing a half-dozen grimy Sigeans. They stared at me for a moment, and then charged. As planned, I obliterated them with a hail of metal and stone. And then it was still. I choked on my breath, sat, and wept for a few horrible minutes, reckoning with the horror of my actions. I believe the gauntlet gives more than just control over objects. It connects its bearer to the world in a way no one has ever described. At least for me it does. My violence created, I don't know what, a wrongness, like a pillar of poison smoke disrupting a blue sky. It seems to me now that all life is connected, part of a larger context, a meta-creature built from every living thing. Killing those soldiers was like cutting off my own hand. I don't mean to say I suffered more than they did, but the gauntlet connected me to this context in some way, and in the aftermath of my monstrous action... I could see the futility of violence with sudden, irrevocable certainty. I saw only one way forward. I resolved never to kill again. I was a day four gauntleteer. In my mother's song, the fourth day sends foes to fleeing, but I vowed instead to forswear violence entirely. My nascent connection to the infinite life around me strengthened at my resolution, seeming to bloom in approval. I marched up the stairs, daydreaming words of friendship. A dozen more soldiers greeted me as I stepped into the palace. I started my speech, but they attacked before I'd spoken three words. One of them knocked over a pitcher of wine in his haste. I parried, dodged, repelled, and screamed for them to listen. But they would not. I was their enemy, and they would not stop. Just give me time, I yelled and pleaded. They answered with slashes and spears and snickers. I deflected each without effort but I was just one person, and as word spread, more and more of them joined the battle against me. I was still mortal. One mistake and I would be dead. I wasn't going to convince them. The blossoming connection to the life all around me turned to a thousand angry eyes and a thousand chiding voices. I felt like a girl again, disappointing my mother. I deflected a sword, turned a spear, stopped an arrow. I didn't notice the dagger until it was flying by. It missed my head by inches. I erupted in frustrated impatience. I screamed for the soldiers to stop. Just stop! And they did. They stopped moving entirely, along with everything and everyone else. I keep replaying the moment, searching every detail for an explanation. A soldier with a dented half-helmet and a mustache slashes toward me, his eyes bulging, his lips curling over yellow teeth. Over his shoulder, a red-haired woman points her elbow toward me, about to hurl another dagger. Beside her, a woman with a shaved head tightens the leather strap of her jerkin, turning toward me. Beside the shaved head woman is the wine-spilled table. The red runs in forked rivers to the edge of the table, swelling into droplets on the edge, preparing to fall. But not falling. Nothing has moved. Not at all. I think I've frozen time itself. I don't understand how I did it or how I can undo it. 
I've broken the world. My mother did this to me. I am her experiment. In search of an explanation, I searched the palace and the city for books, notes, anything. I found the letter addressed to me in the drawer of my mother's study in the house I grew up in. Miranda, there is a river of will high in the northern mountains. It runs off a cliff, spreading life and time to the corners of the world. My death approaches, but first I have given you a cupful from this river to drink. If my theory is correct, it will give you power greater than any previous gauntleteer. Do not waste this gift. Use your time to the fullest. Make the world better. Fix the problems no one else can. This is the thing about life, Miranda. It requires sacrifice. Sincerely, Celia. She gave me liquid will to drink. I remember the cup. Remember drinking. Remember the liquid tasting like water. But maybe my memory is colored with grief and anger. Maybe there was a strangeness to it. Could such a drink have strengthened my power? Is that why I feel the connection? Why I was able to stop time? I feel like a child wielding a too heavy battle axe. How could she be so reckless? I'm angry and confused, and this constant stillness is breaking my mind. I've uselessly tried yelling, continue, and resume. I've wept, enraged, and broken things in petty insolence. My mother did this, and I hate her for it. But I also miss her, and wish she were here to hug me and tell me it will be okay. I thought that perhaps there was some great injustice I needed to fix, and time would unfreeze like some child's tale. So I set about righting wrongs. I found every single Sejian within the palace and dragged their statue bodies beyond the city walls. I swept the floors clean of their boots and threw their swords into the river. When time resumes, it will seem to them as if they were transported in a single moment. But my good deed did nothing for time. I took to the city to find more wrongs to right. I mended a few roofs and patched a few street cobbles. Nothing. I found Asher at the fortifications just beyond the castle gates. I think he was to be part of a counteroffensive. He's strapping on a leather jerkin. I imagine he had been saying things like, I won't rest until I find her. I tried to hug him, but it was like hugging a lifeless doll. I think about the mountains to the north from time to time. I wonder if the river is real. In time, I may set out to find it. I haven't written in a week. Huh, a week. What would that mean? There's no sunset, no breakfast, no ablutions, no sleep. My eight-day countdown has been paused along with everything else. When I feel the inclination, I lie down in my childhood bed in my mother's house. I stare at the overhead canopy, remembering dinners, Asher's touch, laughter. When I can no longer stand it, I get up, and such I consider a day. I haven't written because I don't have anything to write about, and why continue writing at all? There will never be another gauntleteer to benefit or a minstrel to compose a ballad. But still, I feel called to explain, to justify. Maybe it is just naive hope. I want to write the name Celia Southbrook and circle it again and again. This is her fault. Her fault. 
I sometimes see her, my mother, I mean, sitting in her chair with a book in her lap, tunelessly humming to herself. She asks me what I am waiting for. She tells me I am wasting her gift. I tell her how I took the sword away from a man about to stab another behind a fish quarter tavern. I tell her about the coins I took from Shield Street mansions and gave to the poor. My mother isn't impressed. She says I should keep searching. She says I'm missing the point. And I tell her to piss off because she is a figment of my imagination. It has been even longer this time. We could call it a month. My reeling mind has started to fill in the stillness with motion, to give the frozen people speech and personality and desires. Their conversation is just my mind's desperate attempt at normalcy. But I hear their voices, so how can I say for sure that they are not real? There's Benedict, in a green doublet, just outside my house on his way to attend the Princia Prologos. He is impatient and grumpy, but in an endearing way and talking to me always seems to cheer him. Molly is half a block down the street in a lovely blue and gold gown, with one hand elegantly raised to shield her eyes from the sun. She is austere and elegant, maybe a bit snobbish. She thinks I am reckless and naive. I tell her I'm doing my best, but she never seems to believe me. And there is Rickon. He is a boy of six or seven, crouched behind a door, about to leap out and scare a passerby. He never scares me, though. I'm too wily. His antics always make me smile. Sometimes I bring him a treat and his eyes widen, and he devours it as only a child can. Perhaps they are not real, but they feel real to me, and they are all I have. I visit Asher also, of course, but his voice is the hardest for me to conjure. He is too real in my memory to become imaginary. I don't know how long it's been. I can no longer tell what is real. I long ago ran out of things to write in this journal, but I cling to it like a raft in a storm. I trace over past entries with my finger, remembering a world with time in it. But now I have something to write. I have decided to go north. I feel it tugging on me, my mother's gift, the river of will. I've put it off because I will either find it or not find it, and both options frighten me. I've just said goodbye to all my friends. It was hard, but I must be strong. Asher's goodbye was the worst of all. He told me he didn't want me to go. He told me that he was afraid I would die and never return. I told him to be brave and wait for me. I kissed him and hurried away before I could change my mind. He stood still, strong, even though he wanted to chase after me, to beg me not to go. I think about the Princia Prologos a lot. How I wish I could go back and go with him. The river is dry. It took an eternity of searching, but I have plenty of time. I finally found it nestled between two peaks high in the mountains. The riverbed runs off a cliff from which will should fall and spread like morning mist. But the river is dry. I followed the riverbed to find the source thinking maybe it was blocked. I walked and walked, and somehow I never left the same valley, never escaped the shadow of those two peaks. This is a special place, a place that doesn't work like other places. My search was for nothing. I had thought that I could restart time by finding the source of will, 
but it was for nothing. I have explored every inch of this riverbed many times over. There is nothing to be done here. I will return to Reading soon. At least there I have statue friends. Here it is just me. But there is something about this place. Life is here. A river of will, passing in a constant current. Or at least it should be here. It is a good place to write stories. I write them on thick, rough papyrus. Tales of wicked queens and daring adventures. Just now, I wrote a story about a tree that kept growing through storms and fires and chopping axes. The story unlocked an impossible bit of hope. It is foolish and vain beyond belief, but I still dream of songs. I sometimes lie down with this journal in my arms, cradled like the child I will never have. It is my only source of hope. I know what I have to do. The answer has been in front of me all this time, but I couldn't see it. I didn't want to see it. It came, as perhaps all realizations do, from stories. At first, I wrote stories as a diversion, but soon I wrote because it was the only way I could survive. I wrote to inhabit a world that made sense. I wrote of imaginary people and places, but also I wrote a story about when Miranda said yes when Asher asked her to go to the Princia Prologos. I wrote a story about when Miranda told her mother she didn't want to be a gauntleteer, but rather mix herbs into potions in a cottage far away from Reading. I wrote about the many lives I could have had. Along the way, a realization snuck into my words, waiting for me to find the courage to notice it. It is my fault, not my mother's. I stopped everything because the world would not listen to me. I used my untrained power like a naive child to get the one thing I thought I needed time. And now I hold it fast because my secret self clings to stasis. It is what I always wanted. A chance to sacrifice for the future. To solve every problem there is or will be. I can fix the social inequities, heal the sick, and design a fair system of government. With infinite time, I could accomplish infinite things. And all it costs is my infinite loneliness. It is an absurd belief. I know that. But I cling to it anyway. And why? I don't have a clear reason. I suppose I am afraid. I have tried to overpower my subconscious hold on time with shouted declarations and quiet whispers, all in vain. You cannot lie to yourself, not really. But I think I have a solution. There is one thing in my life that binds me to the future, to my sacrifice-strewn legacy. One thing nurtures my hubris. One thing I could give up, if, and only if, I genuinely wanted my present to resume at the cost of my future. This journal. This journal is the story of myself, for the benefit of the future. This journal is a proof of my continued choice to sacrifice my present for my future. I have to give that up, irrevocably and wholeheartedly. And I will. I will. I will throw you off the cliff and watch you flutter and fall like a bird without wings. It will work. I am sure of it. The wind will stir my hair, and I will turn to see the river rushing toward me. And then I will be a day for a gauntleteer again. My power will start to grow until it consumes me. My life will be finite. What a thing! 
What a wonder. On day six we learn to fly. Where might I go? Day seven brings wisdom, but I think I have found that already. I don't know what I will do with my four days, but even if I did know, I wouldn't write it here, because I don't need to anymore. I don't care what you think of me, imaginary composer of ballads. You are not my life. You are a lie I told to myself to justify sacrificing every bit of today for tomorrow. This world will change, and change regardless of my little life, and eventually, you will forget even my greatest deed. What wonders will I miss along the way? The smell of candied nuts and sour beer? The calm that settles the trees before a rainstorm? Asher's hand in mine. I could agonize about the wasted time, but that would only waste more. I will have four days. What a gift. Four days of breathing, of kisses and sunsets. I would throw away a thousand eponymous ballads for that chance. Goodbye, my dear, flawed future. This is the thing about life, Miranda. It is happening now. Editor's Epilogue Miranda Southbrook was unquestionably in the septum during Sajia's failed attempt to steal the gauntlet. The palace was unquestionably cleared of Sajian soldiers in what felt like a moment to all witnesses. Four days after that sudden victory, the septum was discovered fully restored, with the gauntlet back in its place. Miranda Southbrook's whereabouts and deeds during those four days remain uncertain. Many claim to have seen her in passing, or even that she offered some service to them. From such stories, the phrase, must have been Miranda, emerged as a verbal shrug to an unexplained turn of good luck. My favorite story, though, is of a young woman matching Miranda's description attending the final performance of the Princia Prologos, three days after the Sigean retreat. I imagine her in the third row, her eyes wrapped with attention. She weeps and laughs and cheers at all the right moments. She feels the wind in her hair and snuggles into her companion's shoulder, content and very much alive. That was the Princia Prologos by Aaron Zimmerman. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at MetaphoricistMag. Mag.